You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because right now it's too hot outside to practice fencing with the tree in my backyard. I'm Michael R. Underwood. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Marshall Ryan Moreska. I'm Cass Morris, and this is episode 31, Living by the Sword. Welcome, friends. Welcome, listeners. We're here with another wonderful episode and with another wonderful guest star. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, I am Michael R. Underwood. I'm an author, podcaster, and uh, publishing professional at large. I spent about a decade working in traditional publishing as a bookseller and then as a sales rep. And then I was the North American sales and marketing manager for Angry Robot Books which means that I know too much about publishing to sleep well at night. Um, Don't tell uh, us anything. Academic... Yeah, right. Uh, just keep our crap, hearts pure. No business. Um, I did a undergrad in creative mythology, which was a build your own major thing at Indiana University, and then a master's in folklore studies at um, University of Oregon. And um, pertinent to what we were talking about here, I spent about five years studying historical European martial arts in the Society for Creative Anachronism and have studied a bunch of different martial arts uh, styles from here and there over the years, mostly in a very dabbly kind of way. Um, my latest book is Annihilation Aria, which is a found family space opera adventure about married treasure hunters in a galaxy populated by a variety of cool alien species from like cyborg pilots to five plus meter tall tentacled super soldiers to giant space turtles. Uh, it's very much in the tonal uh, kind of genre space of something like Guardians of the Galaxy or the original Star Wars movies. That sounds very, cool. and, uh, very fun. <laughs> Yeah, it has been, it's been great to be promoting a book that is like, this is fun. The world is bad, but you can ignore it for a while. It's what the people the want. The world is terrible. Read a fun book. I'm yeah. for this. This is, a, this is a wonderful thing. And a fellow Hoosier. I had no idea. I also went to IU. So oh, yeah. nice to yeah, meet you. Uh, <laughs> a pleasure. Yeah, my, my parents also um, were at IU, so... I was a townie, and then I became a, an IU student. Very nice. Very strange. I went the other way around. Change. I was an IU student, and then I worked um, in Blue England for like five years. So yes, speaking of, right. of world so, building, there are all kinds of world building <laughs> motifs so we can, in the university town can, setting. Yeah, cut the five-minute segment where Rowena and I realize that we know about a, a dozen people <laughs> would be my guess. Yes. We'll, we'll save that for after recording, to be fair to our listeners. <laughs> Do we have any other announcements, anything that we need to bring up for the good of the cause, friends? Not so much. <laughs> not, not yet. Like, Cass and I both will be having books coming out this autumn, but... You can pre-order them now. <laughs> you can pre-order them now. But we're probably going to be shouty about that a yes, lot we'll over the next later. few weeks. So we don't... We can just... We just be low key about that and yes. say, go go look us up and you can pre-order stuff. It's good. It's yes. all good. I, you know, time is time is such an amorphous blob right now that I'm like, does anyone have anything going? I can't. I don't know. In, what month is it? I have no idea. 
in theory right after this will be shortly after this will be airing is going to be the entirely free online armadillo con and i in theory i'm going to be part of that but i haven't heard any new news so i don't know what that's going to look like but that's what's theoretically happening so that's my theoretical plug for what's theoretically happening so hypothetically tune in for that soon well awesome so we're talking today about martial culture um not martial ryan maresca culture but martial as in military culture Um, so I guess I had a question to kind of launch us off, which is in our vein of choose, don't presume. Um, does your world have to have a military culture to begin with and why or why not? And what questions do you ask to get to that answer? I think one thing that's probably going to be a decent framework is what type of stories are you planning on telling in this world? If you know, you're going to a conscious effort to tell stories like, oh, this is going to be epic fantasy without warfare cool, then you can build the whole world around it. Um, Warfare and martial arts have a pretty long history in epic fantasy, but I think then when you're talking about specifics and uh, choosing instead of presuming, there's a bunch of different ways and levels of prominence and types of degrees of interaction with other elements of culture that a martial tradition can have. Um, So... I would love to read some books that are epic fantasy without any warfare. You get something that's gentler, like um, Catherine Addison's The Goblin Emperor, um, but I don't often see the big epic fantasy trilogy without war, and I would like to. Yeah, I think like there's two different questions in there. It's like, are you telling a story where war is not a prominent aspect of the story, and do you actually have a culture where war doesn't happen, which can be a very interesting choice you can make, but I... I'm personally having a difficulty seeing exactly how that would look like. That doesn't mean there isn't a way to do that, but but I'm not sure how that how you frame that. But you can certainly do a story and then focus on the elements of culture that don't have anything to do with war, and there's plenty of great ways to do that. Yeah, I think it's interesting because humans um, in our historical experience seem to have always found things to fight over. <laughs> Um, whether it's resources or differences in ideology or, um, you know, something people, people are fighty little creatures. Um, but I suppose if you're going to build a world with no warfare, you have to have a reason that people are not fighting. Like what, what is set up in their world that they don't have a reason to be coming into conflict with each other, whether it's that there are, you know, resources so ample that, that that's just not a problem or, somehow they're they're wired slightly differently to not be such cranky little monkeys i don't know um but i think you have to address that if you're going to have um you know a a world with no warfare and then therefore no military tradition at all period um you know you kind of have to have some reasoning behind it to help it line up and make sense for your reader and of course you could have warfare without any um traditional military either you could have situations where you have set up you know magical warfare that looks very different or um everything's done through poisoning or through (laughs) some kind of battle of wits or you know whatever i mean you can certainly certainly play with those traditions but i think we want to talk about slightly more mainstream um martial martial cultures today Though you made me think of the episode of Legion where they show a telepath psychic battle as a dance battle and it's glorious. 
<laughs> or, or um, you know, Catherine Valente's space opera did that as well. The the idea that we've eliminated war by bringing it all down to Eurovision, but in space and having to compete that way, which I think is just such a charming idea. But it also made me think of the, the episode of Star Trek, the original series, where there was the culture that, like, they were at war, but it was all done through computers. And if you're the building you lived in was hit, you had to just, like, show up and volunteer to die because they wanted to preserve their infrastructure but still kill people. It's like, that's an interesting development. I, how'd they get everyone to agree to that? That seems strange. <laughs> well, that is a good question, though, right? That, you know, if you're going to go to war, it's you're putting something on the line that you value and risk, which in our historical tradition has has mostly been, you know, human people and also infrastructure, but what weight you give to those is certainly, as that Star Trek episode played with, you know, an interesting question to ask. <laughs> yeah, and the the relationship of the populace to warfare has changed in a bunch of different ways across history and in different cultures. Um, you know, is the war in your backyard or is it this thing that people go to that is far away and is culturally and geographically distant? Uh, you know, growing up for me, the the first Gulf War was the was the first that I was both old enough for, and I saw like any amount of footage or photography from, and the kind of emotional and geographic closeness of war to the people waging it is probably something good to consider in terms of how um, these traditions and histories impact your cultures that you're writing. Yeah, absolutely, and I think you know we've kind of had some discussions in previous episodes about imperialism and colonialism and to what extent the world that you're writing is an imperial or colonial or both world will certainly have a lot of impact on whether wars are being waged close or far or both um, and what the impact on citizens looks like. It makes me think how in, you know, like all Regency romance novels, you sort of know the Napoleonic wars are happening somewhere very rarely does that matter to the narrative at all you know when you're in your drawing rooms and you're you're having your personal issues like and there might even be officers there might be you know the nice red coats looking all spiffy and seducing young maidens but them being present is totally dissociated from the idea of them fighting napoleon <laughs> just the idea that the war is happening and might provide a mild inconvenience <laughs> to our you know, to the romance itself, because you have to be go elsewhere. But it's, you know, that's just a thing that's happening over there. So I feel like another way that the world that you've already built or are going to build in tandem with the military culture that you're creating impacts that military culture is technology. What level of technology a world is at? What are some ways, um, Mike, that you've done that in your world, that technology and the military culture are kind of play together or bounce off of each other yeah so in <laughs> wait in my book there you go uh, uh so uh in born of the blade which is a epic fantasy serial that i created for serial box and then co-wrote with cassandra cobb malka older emery brennan uh, we have a variety of nations and they have kind of martial traditions and uh the tech kind of technological equivalence is more or less age of sail, but it's a secondary world that's far enough detached from kind of earth history that, you know, there's different currents moving at different times. And really the, the most important technology 
in the in the martial traditions there is magic because it's a magic that is done by uh, sword play and you know so it, it's a, a magic of drawing sigils and like a, a visual kinesthetic language of combining different magical aspects and so who has blade crafters what those blade crafters can do how you're able to support and deploy them is like the big military technology in that civilization and then that intersects with who has the lumber to build the ships that then go and do the invading because it's a, a world of floating islands. So it, navies are very important. And you know your geographical world building will inform the technologies that are gonna be really relevant in the, um, the militaries that you're deploying. You know, To what degree are horses gonna be really important based on the amount of land that you're covering and what uh, resources are available there. You know, Does somebody move into a heavy cavalry um, composition of a, uh, of their of their army because somebody else has a lot of some other type of unit that your your first culture thinks that they can break with cavalry and that change in technology overall like over time is going to ripple across your military but uh, something that I hear pretty often from like American veterans is that the US military was always ready to fight the previous war and not the one that they're in. So that's another thing that you can bring to a story is in what way is your civilization's military fighting or looking to fight a war they've already fought and not the one they're in? Yeah, it's, I mean, I often think, and you don't see too much of this in quote unquote traditional fantasy where there has been a enough of a technology shift that people who are performing warfare in the this is how we've always done it sort of way are going to be thrown completely to to the wolves because the technology has changed and the way that you've done it now no longer applies i mean i remember reading about the idea the guy who invented the machine gun thought he was going to be ending war because no one would be so crazy as to send men charging against a machine gun so therefore by having it you've ended the war and that's you know obviously not what happened it's just that the nature of war then needs to change to match whatever new thing you're doing and that that's happened in basically every war that america's been in for the past 150 years easily wait yeah he hadn't met people had he <laughs> yeah i don't think so <laughs> it's it's up there with the if everyone behaves perfectly logically like i do then <laughs> right <laughs> Which never works out. Well, and I think, too, just the way that a culture thinks about participation in the military or what your role in a military unit is can vary a lot depending on the culture. Um, that are you focusing on hand-to-hand -hand skills and therefore is a mastery of certain techniques um, important to what you're going to do? Or are you fighting at range? Um, and therefore is a different set of techniques important to what you're doing or, um, you know, is is just having, you know, people who are technological or um, technique specialists, something that's important. And then you have a lot of cannon fodder. And I think that depending on the technology that's available and how people are employing it, that can definitely shift quite a bit. Yeah, like a... a a European knight in full plate is basically a tank up until you get to the point where you've got like firearms that render plate fairly ineffective. And like the concentration of resources required to train, outfit, and maintain a knight was 
pretty gigantic for that time. So it absolutely hits what you said in terms about specialist and fodder. And that all, like another axis interacts with is kind of the overall cultural um, relationship to warfare. One of the notes in here is like standing army versus conscript army versus like uh, everybody fights kind of civilization. Yeah, and I think also the concept of do you have a career military or or not? Because a knight that is that is a that's a career. You know, you went to your guidance counselor and they were like, so I think massage therapy is not for you. But let's talk about <laughs> something else. <laughs> we need more fantasy novels about the massage therapists, frankly. <laughs> well, the, you, really do. you need a massage. You need a massage therapist for the knights right, because right. their layered armor just turns everything into bruises. <laughs> right. So. <laughs> we need we need the novel about that person <laughs> but yeah the question of you know do you have people who this is their career or is this a brief stint whereas i think you know most people in our modern american military who serve in the military you have lifers but for the most part people are serving a short stint and then they're out to something else um or do you have people who are showing up for that you know one great epic battle to save the city and this is the first time they've ever picked up a weapon but by golly they're gonna do it um those are definitely all very different different cultures that build up around that as it or is there even sort of a combination where in a lot of medieval europe there was the assumption that you could be called up at any time even though you weren't part of a standing army and so like in england for a long time there was actually a law that after church on sundays men of a certain age had to go practice the longbow so that they were ready if they ever got called up because God knows we might need to go kill some French people soon. So that they would be ready. They would be trained, even though it wasn't the same as a standing army. We weren't still, you know, paying them and doing the upkeep because that's super expensive. And it's one of the things definitely to think about is, you know, how can your economy sustain whatever kind of force you've got going? And yes, we've brought this episode back to taxes. Always. Always <laughs> you back knew to taxes. <laughs> but right. You know, do you have a militia of some sort? Um, that's that's a kind of a part-time gig that everyone's expected to do. And who maintains that equipment? Do you have your own personal equipment or is it community-owned property? Right, and to what degree are martial skills um, woven into everyday life, even for people who aren't fighters? So, you know, so in fantasy, there is, you know, you get, have the ranger type or the hunter who then has to go and fight and like, oh, well, they're the, they're the archer person. Um, applying their skills of hunting game to fighting people, you know, and shooting a bow at a person who's running at you with an axe is fairly different, is to my understanding. Um, but in a lot of different cultures, you'll get certain aspects of warfare are are baked in. Either they're, you know, gendered and elevated or existing skills that can be made into war skills are are taken advantage of like oh, okay well people will go into warfare with axes because they're used to using axes for chopping trees down and that that continuity and that um, interconnectedness of culture is probably going to work to make your civilization and their martial tradition feel more real yeah and and what brushing up or changes need to happen to turn um, Farmer Joe into an effective soldier, um, like I considered during the American Revolution, it, most people had some experience with firearms, you know, they might have used them for hunting or whatever. Um, but they didn't know how to use bayonets unless they had at some point really trained with a militia or served in the army. So that was what they had to really get them up to speed on. Like, you can't run away from a bayonet charge every time, guys, you, you have to actually learn how to defend against it, or even 
golly, do one yourselves. So, you know, what kind of training do you have to put people through can vary quite a bit. So speaking of training, how does how does a culture train a military? What does your montage sequence look like? <laughs> well, well, a, um, a, a veteran friend of mine who served in the U.S. Army talks a lot about how the first few weeks of basic are just about breaking apart someone's kind of mental cohesion to the point where they can be rebuilt into kind of a doctrinaire soldier mindset, you know, so that is overwhelming amounts of physical exertion, um, like kind of super attention to detail, cleaning duties, and just kind of berating people until they crack and then rebuilding them uh, to fit within a hierarchy, which sounds as abusive as all hell to me. And your military culture needn't necessarily have that. And I don't believe that every military culture across earth has done that. But if you're going to have cohesion where you're expecting people to be able to march together, pull off formations together, respond to commands among chaos, you probably are going to need some amount of drilling and a creation of um, a sense of cohesion and group identity so that people will kind of rally back to their squad, will be able to pull off maneuvers even in the chaos of battle. Well, on a practical level, too. The, the amount of trust that you, sorry, just the amount of, you say, cohesion, um, I think the amount of trust that you have to build in what you're doing and the people around you, um, to throw it back to the 18th century bayonet again, I mean, really the way that those tactics worked, you weren't protecting yourself with your own bayonet as much as you were the person next to you. So you have to trust that that guy next to you has your back and that you're all going to work together as a cohesive group um, or else it doesn't work at all. So part of training isn't just that, you know, technical skill, but also think, learning how to think as a group that's reliant on one another and can trust one another. Yeah, when you see like pictures of the like Roman soldiers doing the turtle thing or, you know, doing the shield wall, that's all based on like everybody's got their place and does the does their position and does their action exactly right. And if they do it, it's going to work. And if they don't, then it's going to fall apart. And so you have to build not only the skill, but the trust that everybody's doing the correct thing. And I think that has some really deep roots in what the culture values. And so if you've established those sorts of things in your world building, it will affect what that looks like. Is your culture more group centric and nation centric? Or are you operating elsewhere in life as a member of this group, this nation? Therefore, I'm going to do this for the good of the group. I'm here for the flag. I'm here for whatever. Or is it a culture that values individuality much more? In which case, your martial culture might not be quite as disciplined. It might look more like the the glory of the warrior, the the unrestrained, you know, ferocity and and daringness in battle, which, in in some modes, is very much not what you want. If you want to have that lock shield wall, the guy who charges ahead is not the hero. He's the idiot. <laughs> <laughs> who is at least going to get himself killed and might get other people killed, but in a different sort of formation, you know, that's, that might be the kind of thing that is valued and prized is the man who has, or the woman or whatever, who has that gusto to go forth and, and take the fire and take, you know, the charge or what have you. Yeah. And somebody, you know, the, the farmer, uh, like the chosen one farmer, if you're using a chosen one farmer, which maybe can work, um, (laughs) being recruited to, to go and fight the war, 
it's probably not the first stories of war they've heard. You know, the hero legends of your of your culture, maybe even the trickster or um, kind of folk heroes. If warfare is important, there's probably going to be some soldiers and generals and unlikely war heroes that are narrativized by your culture. And that's going to be part of how they propagandize national identity or group identity, part of how they create the cultural permission structure that allows them to send hundreds, if not thousands or more, of often their youth um, off to fight and maybe die. So one thing that I always find interesting um, with military cultures is how they... Um, either echo or don't echo, echo social stratification in terms of having a um, officer class mm-hmm. and an enlisted class or some version of that or the the knight and the fodder or kind of you know whatever you, you put together with that um, how how do you decide what kind of stratification you have within a military culture it's one of those things that I, on a choose versus presume level, I always get kind of like a little too in my head about these sorts of things. Like, why am I using basically a, you know, a British or American military structure of like general, colonel, you know, captain, you know, major captain or something like that. Or, you know, the traditional naval sort of when this is a completely different culture. And I tried in a different world building project that I was doing on the side, I tried to like completely build it from the ground up and like do con lines off. And I realized that I was creating so much of an on-ramp that like even the process of trying to write it became hostile. Like, no, I, I'm not, cause I couldn't even get my brain around like what the rank structure was. And so to an extent I, I do, but I do also find it weird that that's so common in almost any form of of fantasy regardless of what the world building is like that we tend to use the same rank structures all the time regardless and i don't know a good way around that that doesn't doesn't read as just really weird and i think to some degree you know at the very basic level i'm trying to envision a circumstance where you don't have some people in charge and some people doing what they say yeah. In a military setting, you know, but you are right that for the most part, we tend to stick with a very um, regimented uh, <laughs> use of language surrounding that. And that use of language reflects a very particular stratification that historically has reflected a stratification outside of the military socially as well. Right. So if you have a culture with a much flatter general social hierarchy, how then does that manifest in the hierarchy when you go to war does it does that manifest there or do you have flat hierarchy and then you have um kind of leadership and specialization where it's like everybody is equal but you're the you're the war fighting person so in this situation you know we listen to you but in another situation you have to be listening to somebody else like does your uh in what ways do you, does your martial tradition reflect other social stratification or does it defy it because of some reason that then you could highlight so in the 18th century the common practice in the british military was for people to buy a commission so this was a common like you know career choice for second third fourth son who's not going to inherit and so when the american revolution crops up and you have the continental congress you know and and states and militias raising forces they're like well how do we get officers and actually in New England, um, and I think some of the Mid-Atlantic states too, they actually elected 
their officers. They would form um, regiments and they would elect officers. And I can't remember how long that actually lasted for, but I also thought it was kind of a cool concept, like, because we usually have this idea of like, it, it comes in, it's baked in, is you have these officers and they are there and they are who they are. Um, but in this, it's it. there's something more active about that that choice, that this is the person we are choosing for whatever reason. I think if your military didn't have a hierarchy, your impetus to go to war and your motivation would have to be much stronger and much more broadly applicable to your whole citizenry because otherwise it's like how how often do you get a few thousand people just to decide to go on a murder spree all at the same time together (laughs) usually it happens because someone higher ranking told you to do it whether you are you know it's because you're part of a standing military or because you're in a feudal system where your lords 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 said we're all going to war and so it follows down the chain like yeah, I just feel like the, the that's going to play into why are we at war if we are. Yeah, because that also raises the question of at what point does an angry mob become an <laughs> army when they're leading a revolution? <laughs> and like, it speaks to state monopolies on war, how, who gets to do war, who gets to do violence is sanctioned and not sanctioned by a state. Um, so something I wanted to talk, to talk about was... Um, some of the the ways that martial traditions can exist outside of militaries. So we have, you know, there's the the generals and the the soldier heroes. But then in, you know, in the, the European history that I know and in East Asian history, which I also studied, um, you know, you have you have martial arts that exist outside of warfare. Um, the fencing and swordplay that I studied was mostly the like basically the personal defense warfare of individual nobles. The rapier was not a war weapon for the most part. Um, Europeans, you know, Western Europeans went to war with long swords, halberds, and, and other weapons more so than rapiers. And then in Japan, among the bushi, the, the longbow was the first iconic weapon of the bushi, who then became part of, partially became the samurai. And then the daisho, the, the katana and wakizashi, were more weapons of status that are almost like sidearms um, in the way that a knight's sword might be their sidearm after they've been fighting on horseback. And so you have different weapons for different situations and a different kind of set of culture and social relationships for a, a fighter, a fighting type person who is not at war. Um, and it's an area of particular interest to me because then you're getting into kind of like martial arts schools and uh, school rivalries. I just recently watched um, the Ip Man movie, um, which has a lot of like national identity bound up in martial arts. And in that film, you get regional identity and national identity and like martial arts fights as a proxy for like China's struggle against Imperial Japan. And I think it's a decent representation of the ways that um, these different fights and conflicts between traditions can be a proxy for other or, or different social conflicts. Yeah, it's interesting to think about how the arts of war become the arts of leisure in some ways. You know, this becomes sport. It becomes yeah. a leisure activity. And I don't think anyone thinks that the six-year-olds in their karate class are being trained to take those skills to war in the way that they you know, might have been a few hundred years ago. Now it is something you do for health and for you know, socialization and things like that, but it all comes from this very, very different backdrop than it is currently existing in. And how much of that is just, is an element of the leisure class 
as how they express the leisure class do you have like say a culture of gentlemen dueling with the with the rapier just because they've been trained in the rapier and they figured they ought to do something with that training (laughs) probably (laughs) rather than it actually being a practical matter of you know why why are you carrying a rapier around just in case there's a duel you never know (laughs) yeah and like in, in the U.S. at least, like, for me, fencing carries a much higher, sl- uh, like, class, um, like, indicator yeah. than learning, like, an East Asian martial art because of that direct lineage of who got to do this type of war, who got, who learned this type of um, martial art, and then that kind of filters out as opposed to, oh, well, this is something that came to the u.s through immigration colonialization and like there's a whole different cultural flow so it intersects with class and politics differently yeah i mean you think about boxing and fencing are essentially the same concept it's two people pitting their tactical skill against one another but we definitely do have a different concept of the class associated with an interest in both for really no good reason except for that history that you describe So a couple spots that I kind of wanted to think about a little bit is the question of who makes up your military in terms of gender and in terms of age, because I feel like those are two things that we really historically have pigeonholed our military heroes in fantasy um, in that they are young and male. And to some degree, that's reflective of our own historical tradition, recent historical tradition of people in the military being young and male. But what are ways that we can think about that um, and consider um, if it is an appropriate choice to challenge that in our fantasy worlds? I feel like especially if you have magic, you can turn that completely on its ear. And the thing that just entered my head was like, what if you don't get battle magic until menopause? And so it's only grannies who go to war because <laughs> like, it's a magic yeah. that comes along at that point in, in, a, in a uterus-bearing person's life. And so that's who your military class is now. <laughs> that's, the sort of, but, like, that's just the sort of thing you can play with if you're not linking it to physical strength, to youthful vitality, or perhaps to the expendability of an age group. Um, I think is another thing to think about it, how cultures view different ages as being more worthy or not. You can really, you could shake that up in a lot of interesting ways. Yeah. And like to what degree is like, if you have a mostly young army, is that because you're enculturating them to believe that this is a perfectly, this is a fine thing for them to be able to do and, or are, do you have a, a youthful army because they don't have the accumulated clout, money, or something else to be able to keep themselves out of combat. Yeah, and I think that there are some, you know, legitimate physical limitations to consider. Like, I, I, I'm all, like, I've mid-30s are hitting, and I'm like, my knees are getting creaky, and I don't work so great anymore, <laughs> and it hurts when I stand up. So I can only imagine how whiny I'm going to be in, like, 30 years. But, um, you know, if you have a military that's based predominantly on a high level of physical prowess at some point yes people begin to age out of um at different levels and people are different god knows my neighbor who's like 60 runs like 17 miles every day and i don't know how he does it but at some point you know that that 
becomes less a question of arbitrary ageism and and more one of practical well this is just kind of how human bodies work and unless you're going to inject something magical or things are different in my world that that's a reality that catches up with you but then how do people of that age who have served in the military do they continue to have some kind of role in the military are they advisors mentors trainers do you have some kind of retirement or pensioning program or does the society accept those people back as kind of like, well, you've you've paid your debt to us, so we now support you in some way? Or do you kind of toss them out on their ears? And I think that that's a part to kind of consider and think about in building up a culture that is connecting back with the civilian world. Yeah, and to build on that, how does your culture relate to disability? And how does that inform the way that people's ability to, to wage war is or isn't valued when disability comes up, either from injury or from any number of other sources? If you have a culture that has more effectively integrated and accommodated and accepted a wide range of disability, that probably is going to flow through your your warfare, whether that is people going, okay, well, we're going to we're going to change your specialty or here's adaptive technology that we use in war, um, because those are you can you can move those knobs together in terms of relationship to age and relationship to disability. But also I thinking in terms of like, what does retirement mean that ties into like what level of value upon the soldier is your culture placing and what incentives have they put there to get people to sign up or join? Did they say, look, if you serve for a year, you're going to get an acre of land. And so that right there is already set up as as a potential like this is what your retirement is going to look like because that's guaranteed as part of the fact that you serve i think that's a good thing to build it's like what if you're not going to have it be just hey we've got a war everybody grab your stuff and we're gonna go if it's gonna be like hey you're you're explicitly signing up you've gotta you've gotta give that carrot along with the stick and that's that's a good world building choice you can make right there of what exactly they do to incentivize and then you can also raise the question of to what degree is a relationship with the military something that is a status marker um you know do you have military families do you have like oh well you know your grandfather you know your grandparent was a great war leader and so now when as we go to war you are called in that same way um or do you have a military that is enough integrated with the rest of society that you don't get that stratification in terms of like military families and non-military families? It can even be on like a caste level of like you were born into a soldiering mm -hmm. family. That's what you're going to do because that's your caste and that's your that's your fate in life. Right. Um, <laughs> in in my in in my book in the latest book Annihilation Aria one of the main characters is born into the soldier caste and she is the last in her line of royal bodyguards and so like her mom raised her basically from birth being like you know I'm here are the games that I'm going to use to train you which is basically like noticing a tail like being able to uh like run for a long time and like so that the training paradigm was individualized but it was a kind of diasporic survival of the tradition that her mom had inherited from her mom all the way back through this line and lara this character basically accepts it and, but you could have a character where, you know, somebody in a soldier case doesn't want to be a fighter. Somebody in a non-fighting case wants to be a fighter. You can really highlight 
the way that the different social groups in your civilization connect? Or do you have a something where each caste has its own relationship to warfare? You're like, oh, okay, well, these people do this part and these people do that part. A lot of different ways of lining up and intersecting those axes. So if we swing back around to the question of gender in a fighting force, are there legitimate reasons for having a male-only or predominantly male fighting force, or do we only do that because of the patriarchy baked right in? I mean, I think that's a pretty much a large portion of it right there. Is, And you can make that be an active world-building choice, that your world-build, that the culture is just as much you know, baking in their patriarchy or such. Or in my book, in the <laughs> in the Way of the Shield, I, I don't explicitly like lay out like here's the history and here's here's the you know here's the seven paragraphs of exposition of why this is the case. But I have it that the standing military is male only because that's a relatively that is a new thing. And so because being a little more like sexist and no, oh, this is what the ladies are supposed to do and this is what the men are supposed to do is a relatively new concept, like only a couple centuries in the culture. Whereas the Tarian order, which is this ancient order that's actually outdated and just sort of sticking around as a relic, their traditions be like anybody who can do, like go through all the training and do everything. If you can do it, you're in. So there's no there's no gender limitation. So for many women who want to do some sort of martial training and thus and can't join the army or the navy, this is like, well, you can try this instead. And so that's why half the characters in the Tarian Order are female because that's a place that they can go. And like on a population dynamic level, it is easier to repopulate your civilization if you do not sacrifice the lives of people who can bear children. Mm-hmm. So like, depending on how your civilization operates, if you have what look like mostly dyadic um, sexes with you know sexual dimorphism that, uh, that um, is similar to humans, where there's a lot of wiggle room, but two large groups that are identified. But then how, do you, how does gender layer on top of that? Um, are there other factors in terms of who, like how um, social role is gendered that like, oh, well, this gender, um, is more likely to be war, uh, go to war because we associate these behaviors or these skills with this gender versus we associate these skills and these behaviors with another gender. And you can absolutely poke back at the gender binary too um, in terms of, you know, because you're absolutely right that, that one of the base reasons for, you know, preserve the women is like be, because that's a valuable asset and commodity <laughs> that we need to preserve or our village will die. But then poking back at that, well, to what degree is that is that truly simply biological sex? And to what degree do you play with gender on that? And do you have a gender binary or do you have more than two genders um, in which you can can flesh out how you apply that to military participation? Right. And like, do you have a way in which dimorphism um, intersects with how war is waged? You know, if you've got a if you've got um, a species with more pronounced dimorphism, did that dimorphism? Uh, how did that interact with how this civilization does war? Can you unpack that a little more? <laughs> so, uh, lions, like in in lions, 
to my knowledge, I'm not a zoologist, um, the the female lions do more of the hunting. Right. And the male lions tend to be bigger and stay home. And maybe that means they're like guarding the pack. And so if you have a species where, you know, you've got two sexes, but they're a humanoid species and one sex has like a much more like robust musculature and the other sex has like a much more finely tuned set of senses but they decide that in warfare they build how they fight around ambush tactic tactics then your um your sex that has the the super senses may be your warlike sex even though if we looked at them as humans we go well look at them they have all the muscles now i'm thinking of like spider people <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, like it's it's, gonna, it's more of a thing if you're going farther. Right, from if you're if you're kind of baseline fantasy, um, right. demi humans, demi humans, big quoting marks because big uh, trouble zone there. <laughs> oh yes, yes. H- hit up our hit up our episode last week for more. <laughs> and one other thing too is when we're thinking about the military and the culture built around the military. We've talked so far mostly about the people who are doing the actual fighting, but there's a lot more that goes into making a military work than just the people with the swords or the guns. So to what degree are the people handling logistics and supply and the basic tasks like doing the laundry, like integrated with your fighting force are those the same people are they different people are they specializations are they civilians who are contracted to do that work is everyone expected to kind of have two jobs like you've you're a swordsman and you're also the potato peeler thank you so how do you how do you handle that and how can that affect what what the culture itself kind of looks like and acts like and feels like so i think if you have the more um, extra roles that somebody has to do, the more keenly losses are felt in terms of operational capacity. Um, because if your if your cooks and um, laundry staff and your medical staff are separate from the field troops, then you know twenty percent casualties of a field team is not going to um, mean that you have like a death spiral of medical uh, medical care capacity. I think also the size of your fighting force matters a lot here too. The larger your army, the more specialization you can have, um, as opposed to you know a small war band of just you know a couple dozen fighters is likely not going to have that same degree of specialization. Everyone's going to you know pitch tents and cook things and and help out in that way. There might be a guy who's the reverend or something, but he's still going to be one of the fighters also. Even if they look to that person for their spiritual guidance. Because then on the other end, you get that, that thing where a army becomes a marching city. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, is the, the, the logistics of the march something that you need to, to work into it? I don't recommend it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it gets so complicated. <laughs> Yeah, in in my book, we we definitely talk about the baggage train, and uh, yeah, it's it's a whole thing. Yeah, this makes me think of the um, uh, the Black Company, and just the way that Cook really dwells on the day to day existence of like being in a ca- in a war camp, and all of the things around, like the screaming and the mud and the terror and the blades, um, and that I think. If you're a writer and you are 
like warfare is going to play some notable part in your story, you would probably be well served to think about all of the bits around it. And, you know, back at camp is a great place for your scene sequel action. Uh, there's a really cool um, tabletop role-playing game called Band of Blades, largely informed by the Black Company. Uh, it's created by uh, Strash Asimovic and John LeBeouf Little. And you play a mercenary company. And the structure is you have a mission where you're out doing kind of um, like a war story, um, doing uh, like on a mission, recon or something. And then you come back to camp and you have the moments between the um, like the, the hot-headed soldier who wants the better assignment talking with the marshal. You get the, the time when the lore keeper is telling a story to the whole band about some time when they overcame adversity because they just came back from a loss. You can fill so much texture and all of those moments in between with that day-to-day -day life, especially if you have um, like any kind of anywhere along the, the spectrum of how used to being at war are these people. You know, you can get into habits and traditions of what we do when we're at war through people dealing with the shock of a first battle. And I think also remembering that in the majority of military situations, people are spending the vast majority of their time not on a battlefield, but in camp or in garrison or whatever it is that is their living situation. So what does that look like? And I think that you can have a lot of texture there that informs a much deeper understanding of the world that you're building. You know, how do they eat? What do they eat? Do they have, you know, a mess of people who get rations and they cook together? Or do they all show up to a mess tent? Are officers eating with the enlisted men or is there a separate situation? How are they sleeping? You know, do you have dormitories? Do you have, you know, again, I, you know, I kind of pop back to the, the British model in the 18th century that you had a mess and those six guys you were with all the time. You cooked together. Theoretically, it's hilarious because the, the marching orders all have it as like, you're supposed to cook your food yourselves. And then you look at the sketches of encampments because women followed the British army and it's always women cooking. It's like they immediately divested themselves of that and were like, uh, you're, you can do this. <laughs> and apparently they, they did often. Though the men, we have plenty of images of them cooking too. But you know, what does that look like? Who are you forming bonds with? Do you have smaller groups that are enforced on you that you're spending a lot of time with? Like this is your mess and you're with them. Or are you making friends with with whoever you happen to be digging a latrine next to and what are you spending your time doing is it drill is it equipment maintenance is it other stuff are you given free time for study or leisure or whatever and and how does that play out and I think it's important too because as a writer you are likely to be spending more of your words on the non-fighting aspect of the story because that's that's the why we care that's where you build your pathos. That's where you build those character connections so that when you kill somebody off in battle, it hurts. Um, that's that's where you get that juice coming from. And so it's good to think about exactly that. What is it going to look like? Where can you have those scenes that build character, that tell us what we're fighting for, that tell us why it's important? Because unless you are very, very good at writing fight scenes, I don't think people usually want to read 20 pages of a fight scene. Um, I don't read a lot of military sci-fi which maybe has a little bit more of that. But in almost every book I can think of, the actual combat portion goes by pretty fast. You, you sort of don't want to spend more time reading it than it would take to actually have the fight. So the, the, the para stuff, the, the, the things that happen outside of the fight 
are going to be more important for you sometimes to think of as a writer for that's that's where your word count's going to be almost i sort of spun that one out sorry that was <laughs> <laughs> no but it's 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 totally accurate because if you, again, you know, choose versus presume, what do you want to reflect in those scenes? Is every single one of those scenes, protagonist sits around the campfire with his buddy and the grizzled old sergeant. <laughs> Is that what you're going to really do every single time? Or are you going to show other elements and textures and what that world looks like, feels like, sounds like, God forbid, smells like? <laughs> um, yeah. Warfare is so much more than choreography and stage direction. Yeah. You know, if you want if you want the the scene with the green recruit to feel terrifying, you're going to need to spend a lot of time in their mm-hmm. head processing, you know, input, dealing with senses like, yeah, like a battlefield is going to smell terrible, especially if the fight has been ongoing, and that ability to slow down or zoom out is going to give you a lot of opportunity to introduce these other elements of culture. Um, and to make it make that scene actually hit hard. I'm thinking about you know my one of my favorite long extended sequences in fantasy film is the Battle of Pelennor Fields in Return of the King, and in the uncut version, that's like a 35 minute battle sequence. It's astonishingly long, but what makes it powerful is that most of it isn't about the battlefield mechanics. Most of it is not about you know, this wing went here and they came in on this flank. What it's really about are the character moments, the one-on-one moments that we see each character having their their brush with death or their triumph or their, oh my God, someone I love is in danger moment. It is always, always, always more powerful to have that heart striking in your reader than to just be giving a, a sort of dry text of, and then we took the third battalion to the left and that's not going to get you the same emotional response from, I think, most people. Maybe from some granddads that I have sold war books to on the beach would like that. But I think most of your fantasy readers are going to want the the personal touch within the wider scope of the warfare. There is definitely the audience who just, like, want, like, the numbers and the math <laughs> and the... Like I said, I sell a lot of those and... books to granddads at the beach. And, <laughs> it's like, and there are books for them. There are but, books for them. But you're... But your book as a fantasy writer does not need to be that book. <laughs> so, Unless you want um, it to be. If you love the numbers true. and, and uh, that, go for it. And you can sell it to granddads. On the I kind of want to, like, I, I don't want to try that now, but I want someone to try that, to write a, like, straight up military history, but it's all fake history. It's all, you know, a made up culture, but it reads exactly like a military text. So before we wrap up, um, one of the things I always find fascinating about military cultures is like the ephemera, like the uniforms and and the little things that you pin on the uniforms and all of the terms that people in the military have that the rest of us are like, I have no idea what that means. Um, my husband is in the Naval Reserve and it's all acronyms. They speak in acronyms. <laughs> I don't know what they're saying most of the time, and it takes longer to say it in acronyms than the words would say, but it's just all. So how do you develop those? Like, how do you pull those fun bits in that make it feel kind of real? I don't recommend acronyms, by the way. I'm just going to put in a bid for not that. It's kind of fascinating that, I don't know if I necessarily recommend this on a writing craft level, but you can probably use just a ton of jargon, even if it's, 
garbage jargon and it might read authentic. This is kind of tangential to that, but just the other day, I, on a whim, rewatched an episode of ER and had the captions on, which I never did when I used to watch it when it was on. And I realized a good 35% of their dialogue is meaningless in terms of like, this like doesn't mean anything to me, but like, and maybe to anyone other than a medical professional means nothing, but they're saying these things like with intensity and, and it's really fascinating just on an actor level, how they were able to do that. But also that on a writing level, you can tell that like whoever wrote the scripts, like here's the, here's the character stuff. And then just, I'll just block out a bit where it's like where they're working on the patient and like our medical expert will fill that in. And, (laughs) but like as an audience member, you just know intense things are happening. And, and it doesn't matter that you don't know, like, what exactly they're doing or what that means. And I think on some level, you can pull off that same sort of thing, whether that you can do that in a way that's going to read authentic to both your average audience and somebody who actually is an expert. And if you can accept the fact, like, there's going to be some experts who read this and they're going to be like, what the hell is he think he's trying to pull off? But if you can say, you know what, the Venn diagram of people who are going to read this and people who know that this is bullshit and the overlap of that is very tiny and I can live with it. I think you can get away with it more easily in TV and film than in a book, because a lot of it is about it's establishing the character's ethos it's about establishing their credentials as a person who can handle this situation and so if the actor says it with enough authority the audience believes it and you can see that all the time with like the techno babble in star trek which most of which is meaningless it doesn't mean anything it's made up words for made up science but you believe that they can handle it whereas in a book i feel like you run into a bigger wall of the reader is going to skip things that are too complex or they're going to have more time to slow down and try to pick it apart (laughs) and try to figure out if what you're saying actually makes sense. Whereas on the screen, it just goes by and you sort of accept it. I think there is a lesson there that an audience will accept things that they don't have a full history or full grasp on. So if you're gonna throw some military slang into your culture, you don't have to explain where it came from or even what it means. You can just leave it in there in the context and people will pick up on it. And I think there are probably a lot of little nuanced places that you can throw things in there, nicknames for things or um, alternate terms or um, in jokes, I think, are probably um, a spot that you can really play with it. You don't have to explain the joke. You can just leave it there. And it's clearly a joke. Um, And everyone in the story knows that it's a joke. And maybe you use it enough times and everyone kind of catches on to what it really means. But Um, that you don't have to unpack every little slang term. Or if you have insignia, you don't have to explain every bit of what that insignia means, just that it's there and it's important. You know, I saw saw the the bronze dragon on his shoulder and I straightened up immediately like, oh, I don't even really know what that is, but I know, okay, it, (laughs) it means something to this character. I get it. Right, and to build on that, any, every single person who goes to war or you know, goes to an army brings their own cultural experience with them. And if you've got an army that's big enough that people are coming from all over parts of a country or parts of a region, there's a very good chance that that regional identity is going to be heightened by contrast. And so, you know, oh, like, you know, 
Look at look at Bob the Northerner uh, staying up all night and like, okay, you're indicating stereotypes about regional culture, regional difference. People are going to be able to bring, you know, food, foodways, textiles, all sorts of different things. And you can highlight the different aspects of different parts of your culture. Or if you've got a smaller uh, culture with it, like less regional drift, you're going to have different ways that people like subdefine themselves. Um, and are able to interact with things like the acronyms and nicknames and in-jokes. Or even um, language. Like I believe it was during the Franco-Prussian War that the soldiers from the south of France like literally could not understand the officers from Paris and vice versa. <laughs> and France was like, we need to have a national education system to fix this <laughs> because if we ever go to war again, we need people to understand each other. But, you know, you can kind of mess around with that kind of thing too do people within your ranks do they even all speak the same language or the same dialect of the same language and does that cause issue or does it cause people to misunderstand one another are some of those slangs and in jokes um complicated by different understandings of what things mean right so like if you if you have like an officer class and and non-commissioned officers do people end up as those NCOs just because they speak all the languages and they can talk up and down? Oh, that'd be a really neat character note. So I think we're coming up on our hour, which means that it's time to um, throw the ball to Mike for some guest world building. Um, And this is the part of our episode where we invite our guest star to give us any bit of, of trivia information um, about the world that we are building live on air. Um, and it can be about anything. Um, so I'm really curious to see what Mike has for us. So yeah, I, I kind of fell back onto kind of the civilian martial arts side because it's an area of world building that I really like. There's kind of, I have more individual background with my own um, you know, training in historical martial arts and my kind of aesthetic interest and things like that. So what I what I have for uh, for the triumvirate is basically a, a a few groups and a kind of plot premise that you can drop into more or less any cosmopolitan city that's going to be big enough to support three different kind of basically clubs or schools of martial artists. Um, and so, hundreds of years ago, there was a grand master martial artist. Um, and he had, or he or she or they, um, to be defined, let's say they, um, they had three students who all had different specialties, and the three students could not, for the life of them, reach a consensus and get a consensus among the other students about who was going to take over as the, as the late master's inheritor of their tradition, who would take over the school. And so over generations, you get three competing schools. The Red Kraken style focuses on leverage, grappling, and they use weapons that entangle like whips, hooks, and sword breakers. The White Adder style focuses on timing and uses twin short swords or daggers. And the Blue Tornado style focuses on controlling space and they use larger sweeping weapons in two hands like great swords or mauls. Um, so the different schools have risen and fallen over generations. One will rise in prominence, then the two team up against them, or you know, two form an alliance and then something falls apart. But in recent years, the adepts of the Red Kraken style, the grapplers, have found high roles in government in some way, and they basically waged a cold war of litigation and political persecution against the other two. 
So now the White Adder and Blue Tornado stylists have teamed up and are recruiting students specifically from the trade guilds in, guilds in order to fight political power with economic power and go. I feel like you've handed I love us the, this. I know. I feel like so this, much. I feel like this is the start of a D and D campaign. Like, <laughs> I think we could take that and run. I love it. There, there. Especially since we just did cities a couple of yeah. Episodes it is and just fight over yeah. who gets these schools <laughs> in, in our cities. Like, it's just beautiful. I just love it. I just. This comes out of martial arts training, but then also years and years and years of playing tabletop role playing games, and like that's DM prep. Yeah. Like I could run, I could run that one shot right now, <laughs> and it would be a damn good one too. I bet. I got my dice upstairs. I'll go oh. right now. <laughs> All of our listeners are going to be like just angling to get in on that one. <laughs> well, this has been so much fun. I have really enjoyed having you on, Mike, and getting to um, geek out a little bit on military and and martial stuff. Um, remind us again of the books that we should look for from you, Mike. Sure thing. So if you like how I do kind of martial arts and politics in terms of talking about what we've talked up here, folks should definitely check out the cereal box cereal Born to the Blade. Um, there's one complete season. You can get it in ebook and audio at one price. It's got enhanced audio performed by XE Sands. And it's really cool. Um, and then my newest book is called Annihilation Aria. And that is kind of space opera adventure. And one of the main characters is kind of of a martial tradition. It's Lara, the bodyguard that I mentioned beforehand. And she has like a, a big great sword and she has battles, like battle songs that are magic. So she sings specific songs out of her people's military history to do specific magical effects as she fights like a five tentacled alien that's 15 to 20 feet tall. Um, so it's like that kind of Wah! having fun kind of book. And people can find me on Twitter at Mike R. Underwood. I also have a Patreon with essays about the business of publishing and the craft of writing and some gaming stuff at patreon.com slash Michael R. Underwood. And thank you all so much for having me on. I've been listening since the very start, and this has been so much fun. Well, it's been absolutely delightful. And, and since I don't think that we can top giant tentacled aliens, <laughs> I feel like we should just... Say farewell right now. <laughs> hey there. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on September 2nd, when we'll be joined by author Zoraida Cordova to discuss the home and domestic spaces. A perfect quarantine topic, right? We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions, or you just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked on the About the Show page of our website if you want to come chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build till it hurts. <laughs>